Everybody is taking their seat. Just a reminder that um, we need to be in prayer for the missions team that is down in Brazil. Jeff Phipps is down there with them, and they're having two conferences. One started last Friday, and they're having these conferences through November the 22nd. And there's a financial need there as well, and you can support that by designating it as, as such as you give to the church. Also, uh, continue to remind everybody about the, uh, I don't know how, we've been doing this for two months. I think we can probably finalize the emergency notification list if people should have done so by now. Also, there will be our annual Christmas luncheon following following the service on uh, Sunday, December the 11th. And then there will be communion uh, twice in December, the regular second su- Sunday, and then on Christmas Day, and then again a couple of weeks after that. So that's okay. Uh, it's important. As I frequently point out, a lot of people do it every every Sunday. Oh, yeah, that's right. We have men's prayer breakfast this coming uh, Saturday morning, men's prayer breakfast and... Uh, so I encourage you to come out for that. We always have good breakfast. And then um, uh, also deacons meeting is at 9 o'clock. Men's prayer breakfast at 7.30. I think that's it. We're studying a psalm that focuses on trust in God. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. This gives you the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and that means an opportunity to confess sin if necessary, And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have in freedom to gather together, to study your word, to proclaim the truth of your word, not only here within the walls of this church, but everywhere we go. That's the foundation of our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, that nothing shall infringe our right to... Uh, study to practice that which we believe. Father, we pray for this nation that we may be restored to a more constitutionally based literal interpretation of the the, uh, Bill of Rights based on the Founders' intent. And Father, we pray that we will see uh, many wise decisions and good decisions made by this new administration. Father, we're thankful that we have your word because it guides and directs us. And we know that 
even when an election may go the way any any person might like. But that's not the solution. The political solution is never a permanent solution, only a transformation internally as people trust in Christ as Savior and grow spiritually and overhaul their thinking by the Word of God, that that is how things are transformed. That's the foundation of this nation was people who thought and understood the norms and standards of Scripture. Now, Father, we pray that as we study this evening, we'll be encouraged in our understanding of how to be thankful to you, how to turn to you in prayer, how to uh, trust you, that we may continue to grow and mature spiritually, and you'll be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been in studying in uh, 1 Samuel, and 1 Samuel uh, chapter uh, chapter 19, and in that chapter, uh, we saw that David is under assault from his father-in-law Saul. First Samuel 19, Saul attempts to kill him. This goes up to this is his fifth attempt to kill, kill, kill David. That's the meaning of the superscription at the beginning of Psalm 59, because David wrote the psalm at this particular uh, particular time. And so as we get into the psalm today and look at it, we're going to see that, biblically speaking, God is our safe space. It's always interesting in different cultures that there are always things that pop up within the culture that give us opportunities to talk about the Lord. I mean, that's exactly what this psalm is talking about. God is our defense. He's our high place. He's our tower. He's our shield. He's the one who protects us. I mean, all those concepts are there. And what we see now with these uh, uh, things that are happening on campuses for the last year or two, uh, we see a whole generation of, of, of young people, teenagers, college kids, up into the 30s. They classify them as millennials, but they include a lot of people who are middle-aged as well who don't know how to live in a world where they don't get their way, who don't live in a, don't know how to live in a world where Uh, For example, there are many who, because they have been very, very happy with the way the uh, president has done many things in the last eight years, that now that there's going to be a change and perhaps a major shift in focus, they just don't know how to handle that. And uh, any more than a lot of conservatives knew how to handle it when things went the other direction. And that's because their stability is in the wrong thing. Our stability isn't in the Constitution of the United States. Our ability isn't in a particular interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. Our stability isn't in the um, kind of tax code that we have. All those things are nice if they're done the right way, but our stability is in the Lord. And when you don't have, when you have a generation that, and I believe this this generation more so than anyone previously, it has never. Heard, heard anything about God, that they are more divorced from, from, in a broad sense, Judeo-Christian truth than any previous generation in this country's history. And, be, and they're even more divorced from biblical Christian truth which focuses on the fact that we live in a fallen world. And I've said this many times, and I usually quote Thomas Sowell's book, Conflict of Visions, when I do so, that you don't need to read the whole book. You just read his preface, 
And he talks about his his focus in writing that book was to uh, find out why it was that no matter what the issue is, whether you're talking about immigration, whether you're talking about uh, certain aspects related to war and the declaration of war and national defense, whether you're talking about tax policy, whether you're talking about uh, abortion and right to life issues, whether you're talking about uh, medical care and, and health care and how, you, how the government should regulate um, the health industry or insurance, many very, very different topics. He noticed that if you take a group of 100 people and you say, okay, how many people believe in the death penalty go over here? How many people who are against it go over here? Then the group will split into, into two groups. And then if you say, well, how many people think that uh, those who have come into this country illegally should be uh, deported or there should be some major penalty? And there may be a few people who will change groups, but most of those groups will stay the same. And then if you ask about how many people think that we ought to have uh, national health, nationalized health care, and the groups won't change. You talk about abortion, groups won't change. There may be one or two people on each issue that might switch sides, but generally the same people stay on the same side. So conservatives are on one side. Those who are liberal in the modern sense of the term are on the other side. And he posed the question, what is the belief system, the underlying belief system, the undergirding presupposition that informs how they answer all these other issues in life? And he traced it back, and he goes back to a couple of key thinkers and writers in the late 1700s, and he uses that as sort of his benchmark and as he explores what they wrote, he comes to the conclusion that what makes the difference is that those who are conservative believe that basically man is inherently evil, and liberals believe that man is inherently good, and everything else flows out of those two presuppositions. And if you believe in the Judeo-Christian system, not necessarily Reformed Judaism, they wouldn't go this way, maybe not even most conservative Jews. Remember, conservative Judaism is not the same as conservative Christianity. In the history of the development of Judaism, uh, Reformed Judaism went from orthodoxy to just about as far left as you could get. You can believe almost anything and still be a Reformed Jew, but you don't have to believe in the Torah or Mosaic authorship or any of those things. Well, there were a number of Jews by the end of the 1700s who didn't, couldn't quite go all the way to the left with Reformed Judaism. They were a little more conservative. So they, by the early 1800s, you had the development of conservative Judaism. So conservative Jews are not conservative like conservative Christians are. They're just not as liberal as Reformed Jews. And then there's another group that started in the last 30 or 40 years called um, Reconstruction Judaism, and they're way to the left end of the spectrum. So that's how, how you understand that. But by the Judeo-Christian heritage, I believe that we mean the historic beliefs of, of Orthodox Judaism and the historic beliefs of biblical Christianity emphasizing the elements of what is taught 
in the in the Torah in relationship to government, in relationship to absolute standards of right and wrong, and the role and relationship of government to to citizens and freedom and and things of that that nature. Historic Judaism, although it doesn't have the same view of total depravity that Christians have, they do have a view that believes that is more consistent with that. That believes in, in a uh, an inherent uh, evil in man, and uh, but that was what informed the thinking of the founding fathers. And so, when you get into views like of Marxism, views of socialism. Uh, views in Darwinism that that everything that is is just natural. There's no there's no fall from any kind of grace. Uh, in Darwinism, all the evil that is in the world is just a manifestation of the survival of the fittest, which doesn't at all explain the arrival of the fittest. And so, in 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 uh, uh, Darwinism, under uh, natural selection, the the main thing is that that all this struggle and fight is is good because that's how you advance is through all one group taking power and control over another group and so what we're uh what we see is is uh, and there's no basis for right or wrong it just that's just the way things are so when we get into uh looking at these these kinds of of distinctions then Christians are going to look at things very, very differently. And our security is not grounded in human institutions. Our security is not grounded in political parties. Our, our security is not grounded even in education or success or career. Our security is grounded in God and God's plan for uh, the human race and God's ability to provide and protect us individually no matter what those external circumstances are but we have a whole generation that doesn't understand that and so when when they things don't go their way they don't have the internal mental attitude tools the spiritual tools to handle disagreement to handle people that challenge their uh, their belief system that is uh, often formed in the bubble of a university uh, classroom or university philosophy. I was very pleased a few uh, weeks ago that the University of Chicago came out and said there would be no safe space at the University of Chicago. The university is a place where you uh, forge ideas in the matrix of debate and discussion and disagreement. That's how you learn to think. And now we're seeing this outrage from a lot of young people and I read an article today that that uh, uh, most of the protesters in Portland, Oregon, need, did not register to vote, could not vote, and did not vote. And now they're they're they've been stirred up by outside forces that they don't really understand or know anything about. And and a philosopher said many years ago that the only way that a a finite reference point, something that is limited, something that is finite, can have any meaning is in reference to an infinite reference point. In other words, no, none of us can find meaning in our lives apart from some eternal absolute. You take away that eternal absolute and you're left with the inability to answer life's questions. What are we here for? Uh, what is the meaning of life? What is my purpose? 
uh, am I just here to do the best I can and to, to beat others in competition, or am I here for some higher, more significant, uh, significant purpose? And as I talk about the problem of evil and the reality of evil and depravity, that also brings to our attention a major theme of this particular psalm, and that is this issue of injustice. And so God provides security for the believer who is living in a fallen world where we expect to see unrighteousness. See, if you don't believe in total depravity, you don't expect to see unrighteousness. You want things to go well, and you expect things to get better and better because we're improving things. And that's the nature of humanity, and that's where this idea of progressivism comes from, that we can progress towards uh, utopia. Now, we can improve things, but we're not going to have major uh, progression because if we just look at history, that doesn't happen. There's improvement in certain areas, but not in every area. And then that civilization usually regresses and falls and is replaced by another one. So we have to understand that as Christians, this gives us a great tool if we can work the conversation correctly by asking the right questions to talk to a lot of young people. How, how can a university provide you with security and safety? How can politics or a political position ultimately provide you with security and safety? The only one who can provide us with security and safety is God because only God is more powerful than all of the details of life. Only God is truly righteous. Only God is, as sovereign is able to bring about genuine justice. It may not be according to our timetable, but we are assured in Scripture that it will take place, and that's one of the major, uh, major uh, themes of Psalm 59. Uh, God is our security. When I was thinking about this somewhat facetiously, I thought about the fact that we're studying this as a lament psalm. That's the scholarly term. And using the word lament in this kind of a context isn't always something that, that is a, a, a part of our everyday uh, language. And I thought, well, how can we bring this back into vernacular? I'm not sure that a whining psalm is the correct term, but it, it gets pretty close. Uh, David's in tough spots, and he starts to cry out to the Lord, which sounds pretty close to uh, whining at times. But then he reorients his thinking to the character of God, and that's what provides stability. And many of us, uh, we may not quite get to the point where we call it whining or where we'll admit that it's whining, but, but anybody as part of our sin nature uh, proclivities gets that way. We just don't like the way things are going, and why doesn't God straighten things out? So what we see here is this, as we studied last time, a particular type of, of psalm that's called a lament psalm. There's two kinds. There's a national or communal lament, and then there's an individual lament, and this has elements of both. It comes out of an individual situation with David, but as he's expressing his complaint to God of uh, being the victim of injustice, even though he is blameless and innocent, uh, he also is able to extrapolate that to the, the, the situation of Israel as a nation, that they are, as it were, within the plan of God, blameless. They haven't done anything to generate all the jealousy and hostility that the Gentile nations express toward them. And so God also needs to defend uh, defend Israel. 
We looked at some of the characteristics that we see here, that it's addressed to God. There's a second, there's an introductory petition or prayer, a cry for aid. Third, there's a great expression of confidence towards God. Fourth, there's an expansion of the basic problem, the lament section. Fifth, there's a main petition, a request of God, and then it closes with a vow of praise. Now, not all the elements will be there, and they'll vary, but those are basically the characteristics of a lament psalm. We saw the outline of this psalm, that it is basically in the form of a chiasm. A chiasm refers to the letter that looks like X in the Greek alphabet, and the center of the X, the chi, or the key, is... um, Uh, verses 6 to 8 and 9 through 10, focusing on the wicked and God in verses 6 to 8. It's a description of the wicked in contrast to God in verse 8. They're described as uh, wild dogs in 6 and 7, and then the contrast to verse 8 says, but you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. And then it shifts to an expression of hope in God in verses 9 and the first part uh, of 10. And we'll see that when we get there. I had hopes that we would be able to get through most of this psalm tonight, but I don't think we will. I don't want to rush through it. Uh, I'm a little disappointed in that because these were written to be sung and at one sitting. Uh, just like most of the epistles were. Of course, you have Romans and 1 Corinthians. They're a little bit longer. But going through about 17 verses here in Psalm 59 is a, uh, a little bit more of a, of a challenge, and there are some difficult things here. So just by way of introduction, I didn't get to this last time, we need to understand some things about God versus our problems. Okay, I'm going to go through about five or six points here. First of all, when we face adverse circumstances, when we face adversity, it can come from a lot of different sources. It can come from people. It can come from your parents. It can come from your children. It can be as a result of their volition and their rebellion, or it can just be as a result of as you get older and your parents are older, they have bad health, uh, they have maybe financial reverses, things like that, and children need to help them. It can be problems from your children because they're rebellious, because they reject what you believe, because maybe you have children that have serious health problems and you need to help them. And uh, through no fault of their own, they have other problems. They are loss of a job, uh, divorce, things of that nature, and you have to help them. They may be, uh, you may have a good relationship with them. You may not have a good relationship with them. Uh, Government. Government can be a major problem. I know we have people who listen to these Uh, Bible classes all over the world. There are people in countries in Africa and Asia and India, uh, countries in uh, the Middle East, countries in people in Russia, Ukraine, and they are under and some of them are under oppressive types of governments, and they have a very difficult time. And in some of those places, they are under attack, under assault from. Uh, from governments to limit the overt expression of their Christianity. So government can be a a very real in-your-face enemy. Other places, uh, government has just encroached a lot upon uh, the freedoms, especially in the liberal democracies of Europe and the United States. Um, And hopefully some of those things will change, but the government forces people in many different ways. Sometimes this is through policies that are enforced in human resources uh, that that comes down from um, 
cabinet departments in the White House through bureaucratic decisions. Sometimes it's legal decisions or judicial decisions. Sometimes it's just systems. You go to work in different environments, and the company has every right to limit your speech, to limit other things because it's a private institution, it's a private company, it's not government. And then you have people within those uh, particular bureaucratic structures in the companies. It can be a large company like like um, Exxon or, or Apple or IBM, or it can be just a small company with uh, five or six employees. And the way they structure things may not be to your liking. Uh, we can have problems with technology. I don't think I need to describe that too much. I think everybody here has had a computer crash or phone crash or all kinds of problems they've had to deal with. And there can be all kinds of situations. And we look to something to solve those problems. They bring a lot of adversity and difficulty, stress in our lives, but God is the only solution because God gives us the ability to put everything in the right perspective so that we don't get all wrapped around the axle and and bent out of shape. Uh, speaking of wrapped around the axle, this last Sunday night or Saturday night, I spoke at uh, Country Bible Church in Brenham for their 25th anniversary, and I spoke on Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is a great psalm for most of us to memorize. It begins, do not fret because of evildoers. And that word for fret basically means don't work yourself up into a a, a snit. Don't work yourself up into a position of anger and worry and resentment and and being upset because of evildoers. We find that same word, evildoers, here in, um, uh, in Psalm 59. Don't fret because of evildoers, or be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the herb. They may look like they're doing well right now, but but we have to have a long-term perspective on this, and when it's all over with, they're just going to enjoy uh, some material blessing and maybe uh, power for a very short time, and then God will... Uh, bring things right again. So we're not to fret. Uh, We're not to get all worked up about whatever is going on around us. God is the only solution. We have to focus on that. Several things that are brought out about God's character emphasized here. And one of the things that struck me many, many years ago in reading the Psalms is that the way David faces his problems is he thinks about God's character. We think about his attributes. He, God is sovereign. That means he rules, and whatever is going on now, he it must be allowing. Whatever it is, whether it's small or large, God has allowed this, and therefore I need to think in terms of how God wants me to respond and how he is going to use this for his glory. We think about his righteousness, that God is absolutely uh, absolute righteousness. That's the standard of his character that God is going to uh, always 
operate on the basis of his righteousness, and if he allows unrighteousness to exist for a while, there's a reason for it, but because God is just, he is eventually going to right all the wrongs. Now, we don't know how exactly how that's going to happen. You may have an excellent idea. I've certainly been wronged at times where I've had some really good ideas on how justice ought to come about. But since God is omniscient, by definition, he's going to have a better idea. So we just have to rest and trust in him. God is omnipotent. That's emphasized in this psalm that God is all-powerful. We have uh, three, three times there's a reference to his power. Twice it talks about him as a strength in verse 9 and verse 17. And in verse 11, he's going to be referred to as being mighty. So the omnipotence of God is emphasized. His justice is emphasized. And that's a key issue in this psalm because David declares that that this is happening to him, that Saul is attacking him, and he hasn't done anything wrong. There's no sin or iniquity in him. There, he, it's not through any fault of his own, which is another word for sin, and that that uh, God needs to intervene and protect him and eventually bring about justice. And by the time that he gets to the end of the psalm, he's going to praise God because he knows that God will uh, bring about justice. Even though he may not see it, he is so convinced it will happen, he speaks of it as if it has already occurred. A third character of God that he focuses on is the sovereignty of God. He recognized this, that God is Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the God of the armies. Often we think of that in terms of angelic armies, but that's a limitation we put on. He's a God of all the armies. God is in charge of the Russian army, the uh, German army, which I understand is pretty pathetic these days, the uh, U.S. military, the Chinese army, which is pretty well armed, and the North Korean army, the South Korean army, none of those armies are going to be able to do what they want to do unless God allows them to. And I'm amazed there's a, uh, uh, there's a great trilogy out on, the, um, on, on World War II. Uh, I can't remember the name of the author right off the top of my head, but the uh, first volume is called The Army at Dawn. And if you read that, and it talks about the, uh, it's called the Liberation Trilogy. That's the name of the, the three volumes together. Uh, it's an award-winning author. But he um, he talks in detail about all the logistics and the logistics failure. It's a wonder that we even did anything positive in North Africa before we went to Sicily because of all the malfunctions. Just incredible. But guess who's in charge? God. And we defeated the Germans who in many cases had their act together and we didn't. But God was in charge because God's the God of the armies. And the same thing can be applied to what happened in America during the War of Northern Aggression is God was in charge no, no matter what. So um, God is in charge. He's in charge of the armies, the politics, the politicians, and he rules over the affairs of men. Psalm 59.5, You therefore, O Yahweh, Elohim, Sabaoth, the Elohim Israel, awake to punish all the nations. And so he calls upon God to bring justice against all the Gentiles, all the nations. And there he's applying what's going on in his life, extrapolating it to what will happen to Israel. 
And he says, don't be merciful to any wicked transgressors. He talks about God's mercy, which is a product of his love, his love in action. God is a God of mercy. Uh, the word that is used primarily here for mercy is the, is the word chesed, which is a Greek word for God's covenant faithful love. Uh, there is, and he calls upon the God of mercy not to be merciful. See, so we say, oh, isn't that terrible? Oh, but there is a time. If you go through, if you go through Revelation, you will see that the angels and the twenty-four elders and the church that's in heaven during the tribulation is constantly praying to God to bring justice against the earth dwellers and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all of their forces and to vindicate the believers, which God finally does by the end of the of the tribulation. Uh, period, and that's why I chose this verse, Revelation six ten, to put up here, talking about the martyrs, how that they cried with a loud voice they, they, to God, "How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth?" And these are the martyrs uh, who have been martyred during the first part of the tribulation period, and they're calling upon God to harshly judge the earth. Now, a technical term for that is called an imprecation. It's also called a curse. And so you have these uh, imprecations that are brought down on, uh, on the enemies of God. And some, some people say, well, these, um, these psalms that call for these curses and judgment, Christians really shouldn't pray that. Well, we'll talk about that, but I think they should. But you have to understand why and how you do it. It's not done for personal reasons. Um, Revelation 16.5 continues that train of thought. He says, I heard the angel of water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. This is towards the end of the tribulation, praising God because he's judged these things. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. They deserve judgment because they have killed believers. And you have given them blood to drink. That is a strong image. It is their just due. The last two verses uh, in the in the psalm express the vow of praise and that we should sing with joy in the midst of adversity because God's grace has given us everything to be joyful about. David says, but I will sing of your power and I will sing aloud of your mercy, your chesed in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. That's a safe space, is a refuge. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my... Once again, it's a cognate, not of the word refuge, but of the word for strong tower. God is my defense, my God of mercy. And so this takes helps us to understand the positive attitude that you can have even when everything goes wrong and you lose it all. And that's what happened to the uh, generation at 586 B.C. In, in Israel when Nebuchadnezzar defeated them and they were wiped out and uh, hundreds of thousands were killed and they were buried in the valley of, of, uh, of Hinnom out just south of the walls of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 5.14, the, uh, the elders have ceased gathering at the gate, and the young men from their music. 
There is sorrow in the land because the people have been defeated and taken out of the land, and so music, music has ceased. In fact, the Sanhedrin, excuse me, the Talmud says that when the Sanhedrin was dissolved after the destruction of the temple, that music vanished. I want you to think about this. See, David is in a crisis. Does music vanish? No. What was the problem with the generation when the the first temple was destroyed? They were in idolatry. They weren't trusting God. They had completely failed. So when things didn't go their way, their music disappeared. Their music vanished. And it says the joy of their heart ceased. And then our dance has turned into mourning. And that can happen to the United States if we turn away from God, and we have, and we can, if we continue that. Because people won't have what it takes on the inside to have the stability to survive. But if you're a believer, and God is your security, then you can go through even the loss of everything like Job did and have stability and have joy. This is expressed in... Uh, Lamentations 3 in Jeremiah's prayer where he calls to God, remember my affliction and roaming the wormwood and the gall. It, it's not that we're not, we, we don't experience the sorrow and the heartache of having lost everything because he, he expresses that. He looks at the burning embers of Jerusalem and his heart sinks. He has that uh, expected, typical, not abnormal reaction. And just as we do, if somebody dies, we grieve. But we grieve, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. So that's what we see here in this dynamic. He prays to God, remember my affliction and roaming, just wandering around. What am I going to do? The wormwood and the gall, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. You know, I remember what happened when we were defeated and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And it, I, I, my natural reaction of the flesh is to be defeated. But this I recall to mind and therefore have hope. We don't stay in the place of loss or the place of, uh, of hopelessness. We have hope because, and what he recalls is in verses 22 and 23, there, through the Lord's mercies we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So that's part of what is going on, the mental attitude of David as he writes this psalm, is he's focusing on uh, the sovereignty of God. He's focusing on his covenant faithfulness, his chesed love, his loyal love to David, and how he is going to protect and secure David. So as we look at this, we'll start with the superscript that you have in your uh, in your English and if you look at that, it begins, and if you notice on the screen where I have this verse, because I took this out, out, of the comment, out of one of the programs I have, it's, it, it lists the superscript as Psalm 59, 0. In the Hebrew, if you look at the, I'll pull things up on a parallel column. I'll have a Hebrew text and an English text. In the Hebrew, in the Hebrew text, it's 59, 1. Okay, so this is actually the first verse in the Hebrew text. It just gives some information about about the music because music is important to God. And as we learned, if you have questions about music, and some of the people listening may have questions about music and worship, uh, we had a wonderful speaker in 2013, I believe, 
uh, Scott Annual, and he spoke and he talked about music, that music is a language, and you can have a language, uh, of the language of your music is such that it contradicts what your words are saying. And I believe that's, and we've gone through this quite a bit, that's what's happening in contemporary worship music. They have bought into an existential form of music, not a spiritual form of music, and it creates a contradiction. So when it comes to the point, I'm not talking about popular music, I'm talking about when you are expressing doctrine and genuine biblical praise to God, it should be structured according to the norms and standards of Scripture and from a Judeo-Christian worldview. The first thing he gives in his instruction is to the chief musician. This is the director of music. This would be, be, have been one of the top uh, Levites. We know of some of them. Uh, the sons of Korah would have fit into this category. Asaph would have fit into this category. So this isn't uh, a specifically named individual, just to the chief musician. And this phrase is used 55 times at the beginning of the Psalms, and there you have Uh, some of the references listed up there, but it's found frequently. And then he says it's set to a particular tune. Now, if you look in your hymnal, sometimes you will see that a hymn, and sometimes this is up under the title, sometimes it's just above the um, first uh, stanza, the first musical uh, line, and it will identify a specific hymn. Sometimes it's in, in a footnote. And there are several hymns in your hymn book that all use the same music, that all use the same hymn tune, and uh, the, and it has that same name. Well, apparently there was a tune that was called Do Not Destroy. And it's also the tune for Psalm 57, 58, and 59. And so, for example, in Psalm 57 says to the chief musician set to do not destroy a miktam of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. Okay, so that hymn is about a time when, um, when David also fears for his life from Saul. Psalm, Psalm 58 is one of those uh, tw- um, 73 hymns, uh, psalms that David wrote Uh, but not one of the 12 that gives specifics on the historical situation. And there it just says to the chief musician set to do not destroy a miktam of David. So it doesn't give us the situation, but in Psalm 57, 58 and others, it gives us where where we see this sometimes, it gives a situation. And so this is a, a hymn where part of what David is saying in the psalm is don't destroy me, God, defend me, deliver me. And so there is a hymn that is written called that because the music was designed, we don't know what it was, but it was designed to fit with that message. And see, music conforms to a message, so it's good for a hymn to be, the words to be set to music where one uh, uh, echoes the meaning of the other and they, they fit together. So it's not like back in the late 60s, there was a popular song called The House of the Rising Sun. And um, some of you who may be old enough may remember that back in those days, it was popular to sing Amazing Grace to that tune. Talk about a contradiction in messages. 
okay? Um, and, and a lot of times in history, for example, the tune Amazing Grace that we sing today wasn't the original tune it was set to. It was one that was written later that fit the words in a better way. So it's important to pay attention to these things. There's some kind of nonsense that you'll hear. It's a legend that's not true that one of the things that Martin Luther did, he loved music. He was a great musician. And he wrote songs in the vernacular, in German vernacular instead of Latin. Uh, and the the legend that's wrong is that they'll say, well, he used popular bar tunes, uh, and he did not. But, see, that argument is used, and it's been bought into. It hasn't been investigating. People say, well, you know, when you talk about contemporary music and contemporary worship, uh, don't make an issue out of the music because... Uh, and then they'll use that example. Luther used popular bar tunes. I've heard seminary professors say that. Uh, study your music history, people. It, that is not true. Luther wrote the music. A mighty fortress is our God. Luther didn't take a popular bar tune and you put his words to it. He wrote the music also so that it would fit the word. So this is important, and we see the, uh, this just exhibited for us in, um, in this particular heading. It's called a miktam of David. Now, we don't know. You look this up in, in every single Hebrew dictionary, they'll say this probably refers to some kind of psalm, but we don't know. Nobody knows what that, what that means. And the setting is from 1 Samuel 19, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill them. But what you'll see is people who have a presupposition that the Bible has error in it, it's not in errors, they'll say, well, he talks about the nations and he talks about things in the psalm that, that really don't seem to fit the scenario. Well, and I would reply by saying, well, that means you haven't thought carefully about the scenario because you just want to jump to this conclusion that somehow there's an error there and this is describing some other situation and Psalm doesn't fit it. And then you're flying off into your own little make-believe fantasy scholarly or scholarly fantasy world. Uh, and it's really sad. And you have people with multiple PhDs who do that. Sometimes I think that to get a PhD, you have to be able to stretch credulity to a, a ridiculous point. Now, the theme that we see in the Psalm is that David, who's innocent and blameless, and he asserts his innocence. He says, God, I haven't sinned. I haven't transgressed. Uh, it's through no fault of my own. I've done nothing wrong. Not only have I done nothing wrong, I've done everything right. I trusted you. I claimed promises. I understood what the dynamics were on the field of battle with Goliath, and I stood there trusting in you. The battle was the Lord's. And look what I get for it. I do everything right, and everybody hates me. That's when you start getting close to whining, okay? They're out to kill me. They surround my house. That's it. So David, he's innocent and blameless, and he is petitioning God, omnipotent God. Now, the word petition reminds us that this is, fits a certain kind of prayer. And so you can use this as a pattern for your own prayer life and think through circumstances and situations uh, that may apply. He petitions omnipotent God. A faithful, powerful God. He twice calls him, uh, oh, my, um, my strength in one place. And he uses the term mighty in two other places. Um, 
So his faithful covenant love to protect and preserve him from his evil, wicked enemies. So he recognizes God has the power to save him, and he's just, so he needs to execute justice. So in the first verse, it reads, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. And we see instantly that this is an example of what is called synonymous parallelism. For The first line is echoed in the second line. Deliver is a synonym for defend. For enemies is a synonym for those who rise up against me. Now we'll see the use of this word natsal, deliver, twice. We see it at the beginning of verse 1 and at the beginning of verse 2. And if you're taking notes, you have your Bible and a pen, I would circle both of those and draw a line connected them so that you're reminded of this. Um, And then you could also uh, underline or mark in a slightly different way the word defend. So he's calling upon God to take away his enemies, to rescue him from his enemies, or save him uh, from his enemies. It's used 32 other times in the Psalms other than the two times in this. So this is a popular word in the Lament Psalms to call God to deliver me from my circumstances, to rescue me from what appears to be crushing circumstances. The word defend, we looked at these last time, is the word sagav. It's in a PL stem, which is an intensive. It means, and it has that idea of something that is exalted or something that is inaccessibly high. The noun that's related to it refers to being set in a high tower, set in a high place, and a place of refuge. We had this used in passages like Psalm 21. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. We'll see that concept of the day of trouble also in, uh, in this particular uh, psalm. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. That's how it's translated, but it literally means set you on a high place where you're protected. Uh, concept like a safe space. Uh, but I am Psalm sixty nine twenty nine. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. That's how it's translated in the New King James. Psalm ninety one fourteen. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. God says, I will set him on high. See, that's where it's translated literally there. Because he has known my name, he's understood who I am, and he trusted in me. That's the idea there. So we see Psalm 59.1, if I were to expand the translation or, or make it a little more precise, I might translate it, Rescue me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. And so we see this uh, emphasis here that these enemies are those who are rising up against him. So that's, that's a parallel. And in verse 2, we see the, the enemies explained by two more phrases. So we have enemies, and then we have those who rise up against me. They are uh, stirring up trouble. But there's more to it than just troublemakers. In verse 2, he says, Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. And so there we have the uh, Greek term, avon, which is the word that's usually translated iniquity, uh, that's one of three words for sin that we find in this particular chapter, and it has to do with 
with those who are working or outworking evil, but it's in parallel to the to the term bloodthirsty men. Now, um, here in this slide, I've got the the first line, which is deliver. Uh, from iniquity, avon, and then the second line, save me is parallel to deliver, and bloodthirsty men uh, is, is literally, um, as we see here, uh, men of blood. So we have four terms that are used in these first two verses to describe them. They're enemies. They've elevated themselves. They've risen up against David. They are workers of iniquity. They are sinful. They're motivated by their sin nature. But more than that, they are men of bloods, and that's an idiom for murderers. So he recognizes that these guys have been sent to to execute him, to kill him. And this is the important for understanding this first part where in the first four verses, David is urgently petitioning God to deliver him or rescue him from these treacherous, violent enemies. It's, it's an urgent cry for rescue. Remember, if we read the story in 1 Samuel 19, he's at home with his wife, and they realize that, that the house is being surrounded by, by Saul's goons and these execution squads. In fact, uh, there might even be some suggestion here that there are two groups. He's got his spies there who are just surrounding the house, and then there's another group and their mission is to kill David or execute David. And that becomes a little more clear um, when we get into the uh, third verse, where David says, for look. So he's praying to God. Now, he knows that God knows everything. He's being anthropomorphic here. That means he's using a human phrase of action in order to call attention to God to, to to act quickly, to act in haste. He says, for look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin. Okay, see, the first thing that he's pointing out here is that his enemies lie in wait outside of his house. They lie in wait for my life. They've set up an ambush. They're watching. They're waiting for him. Uh, the verb tense indicates that he's that he's describing this as it is happening. It's very dramatic. And um, another thing that this shows is they lie in wait. That shows it's intentional and premeditated, and that this isn't something that has just just been a spontaneous reaction. A lot like these riots that we're seeing ever since. Uh, President-elect Trump was elected last Tuesday night. These are not spontaneous. These are not people who are just erupting in anger. They are the result of quite a few different organizations. Some of them are anarchic uh, organizations to promote anarchy. Some are uh, communist organizations. Some of them are funded by by MoveOn.org and George Soros and other groups. And their intention is to create chaos. Their intention is to destabilize the nation. Their intention is simply to cause trouble and to uh, destroy the stability of the nation. So we have to understand these things are funded. They, uh, it's, it's like what came out after a number of studies um, in the situation in, uh, in Missouri last year. Where was that? Where? where? Ferguson. Ferguson, that's right. 
in Ferguson last year that that many of the, the most of those who came in as uh, demonstrators were from outside they were paid professional agitators and that's the same thing that's going on in these these places right now so we need to pray for the stability of our country and that God would bring justice in these situations and shut down what they are doing. That's the same kind of thing that David is doing in this particular prayer. And uh, as we look at this, he describes his enemies as the mighty. Now, this word, Oz, is a cognate of the same word that is used and translated strength for God, and it's applied in another verse for God. And so we see that that he's contrasting the finite might of his enemies with the with the eternal might, the infinite might, the omnipotence of God. Uh, the mighty gather against me; they're mightier than he is. There's nothing he can do to rescue himself from the from the situation. And then he asserts his innocence. He says, "It's not by transgression." nor for my sin. These are two other words that are used in Hebrew for to express the idea of sin. Pesha, which has the idea of transgressing a law. So it's usually translated transgression. Somebody's violating a command, somebody who's in rebellion. And then the word sin is the broad term for sin. This is the word chatat, which has the idea of missing the mark. It's used for sin. It's used for sin offering. But the root meaning is to miss the mark, to come short of the goal, to fall short of the standard. So they lie in wait. And then fourth, they say they run and prepare themselves. And again, he asserts his innocence. He says, through no fault of mine. So it's the picture of the fact that they've got runners who are going back and forth to Saul to report on David's activities and what's going on. So he knows that he is completely under under uh, watch by Saul. So uh, we see here he mentions that his enemies lie in wait outside of his house. Second, that they are characterized as the mighty. Third, that he asserts his complete and total innocence, that he's done nothing other than to trust God, uh, to gain victory over God's enemies and Israel's um, enemies. So it's important to note that David recognizes that he is the victim of jealous envy on the part of Saul and then these lesser ones, uh, in the government. A principle we need to remember is that those who are promoted by God frequently are the objects of scorn, derision, libel, and gossip by others. And it happens in the Christian community. Somebody does well in, as a pastor and builds a church and is teaching the word and God blesses them, then other pastors are jealous. Somebody uh, shows that they have some intellectual acumen and studying the scriptures, and then they get shot at by others. I mean, jealousy is a terrible thing, and you see it in the Christian community, but it seems to be uh, worse in the cosmic system, and you see people who become extremely jealous, especially when it involves money, money or power. In this case, of course, it's power because Saul is going to lose the kingdom uh, to David. So David recognizes that, and then he uses these terms for sin. And one of the the sin we saw earlier, iniquity, that word is used here in the second stanza. They run and prepare themselves through no iniquity of mine, literally. It's that Hebrew word uh, avon, through no iniquity of mine. David asserts that he is 
uh, without sin in this particular situation. And then he calls upon God to wake up, to wake up. Now, uh, a couple of things we ought to note here is that that he's he um, uh, that this concept of being awake is typically used of the false gods in Scripture. We think of the situation in First Kings chapter seventeen when when Elijah is challenged the priests of Baal, uh, call upon Baal and have him bring down fire upon the sacrifice and burn it up. You can't do it. Well, he's not listening. It hasn't happened. Well, maybe he's asleep. But what we learn in the scripture is God of Israel is a God who neither sleeps nor slumbers. Okay, God does not slumber nor sleep, as the text says. And so David recognized this. And so the the call to awake uh, might be better translated, arouse yourself. In other words, act now. He's calling upon God to, uh, to urgently intervene in the situation and to, to rescue him, to help him, and look at what is going on. And then he concludes this opening session, and he says, You therefore, O Lord God of hosts. Now, he, this is where he extrapolates from his current circumstances to that of the nation. O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake, arouse yourself to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Now, this is what's called uh, an imprecation or an imprecatory prayer, a call for for God to judge and to harshly punish uh, those he's praying about. And so sometimes people say, well, we shouldn't do that. Well, I think we should, but, but we don't do it out of personal vengeance or vindictiveness. We do it because the character of God is at stake. We might pray an imprecatory prayer legitimately when you're coming into an election cycle or during the year that God would restrain and destroy those who would attack the Constitution and destroy the nation. And I think we saw the answer to that kind of a prayer. You've heard me pray that kind of a prayer, uh, that God did that in this last last election. And so uh, we call upon God to punish those who are guilty and worthy of wickedness. And then uh, David says, do not be merciful to them. And this is the Hebrew word for grace. Don't show favor to them. Don't be kind to them, Lord. They deserve it. They punish them. Bring judgment upon them. God may, of course, say, no, I have another plan. I have a, I'm going to use them for something. Uh, Habakkuk wanted God to punish the Chaldeans, and God said, nope, I'm going to use them to punish all the idolaters in Israel first. And so sometimes God has a plan, but eventually God brought ju- judgment against the, um, against the Babylonians. So he says, do not... Uh, be merciful to the wicked transgressors. And the word there for transgressor is the word uh, that should be probably in context is traitors. They're traitors to God's plan and to God's purposes. So a couple of things before we close. Should we pray, pray such prayers? And I think as long as we do so uh, within the right context. Ultimately, we realize that as individuals, we long for God to punish evil. And so we legitimately pray for God to punish evil, to remove it from the world, and to set up his kingdom, which is a kingdom where there is no longer sin. Now, does that strike a chord of, uh, of recognition? 
when Jesus taught his disciples, they said, teach us how to pray. Jesus said, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. See, that's the establishment of a righteous rule and a righteous environment. Uh, Jesus said that uh, pray for the kingdom to come. Of course, that was his message at that time. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was a call for righteous rule to be established on the earth and for injustice to be removed. Uh, Now, that's being postponed. The kingdom hasn't come yet, even though liberals have been trying to bring in the kingdom of God for since the late 19th century. Uh, And they'll still be doing this in the future under the guise of the Antichrist. But it won't come until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. All right, we've made it through the first part. Ends with Selah, which is a pause in the um, in the singing. And this first theme expresses God, uh, David's prayer, his petition for God to urgently intervene and to rescue him from his circumstances. When we come back next week, we'll look at his description, horrible description, of those who were his enemies. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this evening and to reflect upon these things and to be reminded that you are our, uh, our, our security. You are our tower of protection, our defense, and we need to learn consistently to flee to you because you are the only true safe space. You are our security. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned in Christ's name. Amen.